Hello, I'm Martin Spinelli, welcoming you to a special episode of For Your Ears Only. Way back in 2014, Lance, Dan, and I, Lance is the other voice of For Your Ears Only, and he's also my research partner, we started taking podcasting very seriously as a new medium in its own right. And we spent several years analyzing it as a form, thinking about its unique traits and the special ways that it connects with audiences, and interviewing the smartest podcast makers and thinkers we could find. We ended up writing a book called Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution, which you can get from Bloomsbury, and with the help of our amazing producers, Jack F. Jewers and Ella Gray Thomas, we created the podcast series that you're listening to right now. In the autumn of 2019, we put on a day of podcast events for the Brighton Digital Festival, which we very creatively also called For Your Ears Only. Hey, if something is working, why mess with it, right? The episode that you're listening to now is the recording of the key moments of that day. And on it, you're going to hear a panel discussion with Fiona Sturgis, who writes a podcast column for the Financial Times here in England, Dario Linares, who is principal lecturer in media at the University of Brighton, and also the co-host of the podcasts Cinematologists and New Oral Cultures, and our own Ella Gray Thomas, who has recently been poached by the German audiobook publisher Zebralutions. We're going to talk about some bigger issues in podcasting, like how and why it's become the cultural phenomenon that it has, how the money in the podcasting world is shifting, and what that means for both creators and listeners, and we'll pitch you some recommendations for some good podcasts. Then Sarah Lee of Plenty Productions leads some more practical Q&A sessions with Todd Jordan of the marketing and media company Brilliant Noise, and with Melita Dennett, who is the producer of the ACA podcast for the Attenborough Center for Creative Arts. And then we're going to wind things down with a fabulous creative piece called Pod Cutting by the sound artist Paul Nataraj. Podcutting weaves lots of beautiful moments from dozens and dozens of podcasts that we've thought about, written about, and loved and hated in recent years, with little fragments of Vox material that Paul collected on the day from both participants and audience members. The whole thing was really a big launch party for this series and for our book, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution. So here it is, the For Your Ears Only podcasting day recorded at Lighthouse in Brighton for the Brighton Digital Festival on October 15th, 2019. My name's Sarah Lee, and I'm the organizer, one of the organizers of today's event. I just want to let you know what's going to be happening today before I pass you over to Martin for the first session. It's basically divided into three sections. Um, the first section is our panel discussion, talking more generally about um, podcasting and why it's important and why we're all here today, really. The second section is more practical, which will be looking at two practitioners who are very active in the world of podcasting, talking about their experiences of making podcasts, what they feel it gives audiences. Then after that, we've got Paul Nataraj, who's at the back there. Uh, Paul is our sound artist who's going to be doing a piece of work that we'll be showing at the end of today's session. I'm not going to say any more than that because Paul will be out and about talking to you and collecting bits of audio from you. Um, I'm going to pass you over to Martin now who's going to introduce the first session. Um, thank you. Thanks Sarah. And thank you all for being here. 
We are doing a big podcasting event this afternoon and early evening. Our expert panel discussion, I will introduce my fellow panelists and and give them some time to introduce themselves in a moment. But this panel, as Sarah said, we're going to take quite a broad overview of podcasting, thinking about it culturally and socially as a phenomenon, thinking about how we are trying to make sense of the incredible exponential growth in podcasting that's happening all around us, and how it works on listeners and what makes uh, a beautiful podcast a beautiful podcast. The first thing I think it makes sense to do is for uh, me to just kind of tell you what I mean by podcast when I use the term podcast. So it, I've I've got a working definition, which is open to change and tweaking by people on the panel and and everyone here, but I think of it as episodic audio content that is primarily, first and foremost, produced for distribution on the internet and produced primarily to be consumed on mobile phones or other portable audio devices. So that's my working definition of podcasting. What I'd like to do is uh, let me just kind of introduce myself in in one line, and I'm going to tell you a couple of podcasts that I'm listening to. I'd like everybody else on the panel to work down from Fiona through to Ella and Dario. Introduce yourself and um, tell us a couple of podcasts you're listening to. So I'm Martin Spinelli. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex in the School of Media, Film, and Music. I'm the co-author with Lanstan of the book that came out earlier this year, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution. I'm also the co-host and co-writer on a podcast series, which is a companion to that research done in the book. And that podcast is called For Your Ears Only, uh, from which we get the title for today's event. And two podcasts that I'm listening to and really enjoying at the moment are 20,000 Hertz and Everything is Alive. So, Fiona. Hi, I'm Fiona Sturgis. I weirdly... To call this a job is a bit strange, but I write about podcasts for a living, which means I sit on my ass at home just, you know, listening to stuff and call it a job. I write a podcast column for the FT and I write about arts across lots of other newspapers, including The Guardian, The Independent, I have paper and so on. Podcasts that I'm listening to right now, a brilliant new podcast from Australia called Brain on Nature and another one called, uh, it's been out for about six months or so, maybe a bit longer, called The Shrink Next Door. Hello, I'm Ella Gray-Thomas. I am one of the producers of Your Ears Only. I co-produced it with Jack. I've worked in other podcasts and other radio productions, and I'm currently a audiobook manager for Zebralution, which is a distribution company. And what am I listening to? Um, I'm, a, well, I'm just... Most of the time I'm listening to my dad wrote a porno on a loop at the moment. Yeah, it's just such a funny and startling podcast with uh, no bounds of what narrative should be which I find find quite funny and another one which I've been listening to that I only started listening to a couple of days ago is Women Like Us which is a sort of a I'm not sure if it's scripted or not but it's um it's almost like a spoof podcast with Katie Brand and Catherine Parkinson and yeah I've really enjoyed it I've not enjoyed a new podcast for a while quite like it Hi, I'm Dario Linares. I work at the University of Brighton in the School of Media. I'm actually from a film background. I started the Cinematologist podcast in about 2015 with a colleague when I used to work down at Falmouth University and came up to Brighton and we still continue it kind of via Skype and via other technological mechanisms. And it kind of changed my orientation and my focus of research as an academic from film over into podcasting and even sort of 
got me into thinking about communication and knowledge and all that kind of thing. So that's why I find it really fascinating. Um, yeah, we just published the book this year. Um, I'm just get the. I'm gonna, I don't want to say the title of your book now. It's podcasting: new oral cultures and digital media. Got that right? And we did a, a podcast to accompany that because it seems to be the thing. You know, it seems a bit counterintuitive to just write about podcasts. You've got to do a podcast as well. And that was called New Oral Cultures. Podcasts I've been listening to. I've just finished, I just binged the season of Against the Rules, which is by Michael Lewis. And he's the guy who wrote Moneyball. And it's kind of like about a lot of the things that are going on in society around the world about the fact that we don't trust the people who arbitrate the rules. And, you know, it goes in politics, culture and society. And another podcast I'm always listening to is the Blind Boy podcast, which is by this Irish guy called Blind Boy. And uh, yeah, it's just really fantastic. It's one of the only monologue podcasts I listen to, and it's got a beautiful sort of tone and gives you a really nice, easy listening sensation, but it's also very informative at the same time. Great. Thank you. So I'd like to start by talking about and kicking around this idea of podcasting's incredible incremental growth in the past year or a few months. In 2018, Apple Podcasts was estimating that they had about 350,000 podcasts available. A year later, they're estimating that number at 700,000. So that's doubled in one year's time. Nick Kwok, who is the editor of Hot Pod, which is an industry newsletter for podcasting, predicts that this year we will cross a symbolic threshold and $1 billion will be spent through advertising on podcasts in 2019. You may have also clocked in the news this summer some really big podcasts making, uh, really big podcast news making headlines. Spotify bought Gimlet Media, the, the podcast production house, Gimlet Media for $240 million. And Luminary, uh, a paywall podcast launched in August with $100 million of venture capital behind it. So things are booming incredibly at the moment. So I'd, I'd just like to ask everyone on the panel, and please just chip in and let's make it as conversational as possible. What do you all make of this runaway growth in podcasting? What might it mean? And how significant is it? And, and how might it have implications for the typical podcast listener? I mean, I, I'm a believer that you can't really have too much choice. I mean, over the years, throughout my writing career as an arts journalist, I've written about TV and music and books and stuff. I still do. And no one's ever said, there's too many books out there. I can't read all the books. And I think, and the same with, you know, no, there's, there's not too many albums. There's just, you know, more choice is a good thing. I do worry about this idea that I think is a bit of a fallacy that anyone can make a podcast. I mean, it's true that anyone can make a podcast, and I think these kind of stats make people think, oh, I should do one of those. And my th thought about that is, no, you shouldn't, <laughs> unless you've got, actually got a reason, an idea, and some skill, and, you know, all of that. But I, d I don't think, I'm not worried about the fact that it's turning to a great industry. I don't see too much of a problem with money coming into it as long as it trickles down. So, I mean, I could go on and on. I'll, pa I'll pass it on and see what you guys think. I, I half agree with the thing about you shouldn't do a podcast. I think you shouldn't do a podcast if you uh, have the aim of making money. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think anybody can do a podcast. And, you know, if the, the reasoning is behind it because you have a, you know, a special interest, completely niche that no one else is going to do and it's for your own motivation or it's related to, I mean, like for myself, when I started podcasting, it's attached to my academic mm. 
life and interest rather than because I know that the stuff that I make is not going to be commercially viable and it's not aimed for that I think I'm just talking about the idea that it's easy that you yeah, can yeah, just oh, no, switch on your iPhone yeah, and yeah, you yeah, have yeah, a podcast yeah. no I agree with that, yeah. that it's that it's very labour intensive and uh, yeah I spend more of my, of my time you know doing podcast editing I think than doing university admin but that's another story I think the um the question of the consolidation or commercialization of podcasting, the phase that it's moving into now, is very much corporations trying to find ways to monetize because they do see the numbers of certain podcasts and how much downloads and, and trying to figure out you know, where the value of this product is and gatekeeping is a kind of next logical step of that commercialization process. The implications, I think, could be quite problematic because I think, you know, the algorithms and the way that podcasting sorts itself out in terms of where you get the accessibility is going to become narrower and narrower around certain names, around certain star names, and around certain commercial brands. So therefore, I think it's going to become more and more difficult for you to have a breakout like my dad wrote a porno than it was in the past, because I think the, the basis of podcasting was it was open source, and I think we're moving away from open source. So. Ella, all this growth, what do you think? Well, trying to put into words is that like any the growth of any art form is it's multifaceted but it's good that people with money are interested and are interested in make it more financially viable sorry as a um, as a system but coming back to what Fiona was saying is that there has seemed to be a huge number of people who've kind of gone ah podcasting that's a, that's a thing that's a thing that I should do and then they just give it a go and it's actually an idea that it's not even just native to podcasting. It's sort of anything on the internet. With social media, YouTube, people just go, I'll just make a thing and then I'll put it on the internet and then everyone sees it and then I'm a huge success. And then they do it and they go, oh, no, actually, it's really, really difficult. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff on the internet. Yeah, I, I do think the amount of stuff does make it people harder for people to get through. Certainly people coming from a grassroots background who are just doing the thing that they love and don't really care if it's a success or not, and then suddenly it takes off. So you think the, the, the impulse to do a podcast that so many people have is making it harder for other podcasts to rise to the top and become known and visible to kind of discover them? Is, that, is, there, is there a problem with you know, everybody wanting to do a podcast? I think it's becoming cool, and cool is deeply awful for... Um, <laughs> Art. So I reckon we're probably going to go through a few years where, I don't know, there's a thing at the moment where it seems like every B-list celebrity is getting their own podcast where they just interview the same people oh God, yeah. as yeah. all the other, po and that suddenly mm. seems to be what is full, what is, you know, taken over the iTunes homepage, or not, it's not called iTunes anymore, is Apple it? Podcasts. Apple, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Yeah. yeah, and that's, you know, taking over... Uh, podcast blogs, social media, um, all those adverts that ACAST put in of ad advertising their own podcasts, which can't be sustainable um, financially. But, you know, hey, hey, whatever. It's, it's kind of like an, ex an accessory, isn't it? It's becoming yeah. a bit of an accessory. and Yeah, it's a cool thing to have. Mm. And but I don't think they always know why they're doing it. Yeah. Like, my agent says, I have to have a podcast, so let's make a podcast. And you just think, well, as you, I mean, as you point out, they're all very similar yeah. in format. And as you say, the same names going round and round and round. So I get press releases from people making podcasts or, you know, PR people pushing podcasts all the time. And it is the same, you know, British podcasts particularly, it's the same sort of 40 or 50 celebrity mates all talking about the same shit. And it's just... Yeah. 
really tedious. So maybe we need a ban on B-list celebrities doing yes. podcasts. But or everybody else, everyone else is Everyone else is cool. A-lists are fine. <laughs> <laughs> if okay. Angelina Jolie wants to make a podcast, I'm fine with that. Dara, you mentioned it earlier. It is, it is so much easier now to put out a podcast than it used to be. You can sign up for an account in... 30 seconds on Anchor FM and be making a podcast that is pushed out to the aggregators with very little effort. Does anybody worry that we're just creating too much stuff to listen to and that we are going to kind of reach a point where people are going to burn out on this form of podcast because there is just too much to listen to and, and too much choice and we're drowning in it? Well, I don't think that's specifically a problem for podcasting. I think that's just cultural products generally I mean you know I forget where, what the quote was but you know it was something along the lines of Netflix's main enemy is sleep and I think that we're all in this age now we're all trying to manage our relationship to the media that we consume I mean sometimes I do feel like my life is just swapping from one screen to another and you know that sense of presence and I think sometimes if you going through the process of curating your own cultural world is like a labor that we have to all go through now. And when you get it right, I think it's great because you, you do feel like you're engaged and you do feel like you're, you're getting the right amount, but you're inside and outside of it. You're not being bombarded. But then, yeah, sometimes it's just completely overwhelming. So let's talk about the sound of podcasting for a moment and the cultural experience of podcasting for a moment. How is podcasting distinct and different from other forms of audio that came before it? I think it's, I mean, it's the, the classic word is intimacy, isn't it? It's the, the way you listen to a podcast is just you and the voices in your head, which makes it sound a bit crazy, but you know what I mean? It's partly about that intimacy and it's partly about the decisions you make before you listen to a podcast. You know what, I'm still being asked by a lot of people when I'm when talking about podcasts, well, what is the difference between podcasting and radio? Well, radio, there's a, you know, there's a small number of people at Broadcasting House who have decided what's going to be on the schedule, and you may or may not tune into that. And radio can be like kind of wallpaper, like background. Whereas podcasting, you're making an active decision. What do I want to listen to today? Do I want a piece of narrative, journalistic, you know, documentary making? Do I want a fiction podcast? Do I just want, you know, B-list celebrities wittering on about nothing? These are the decisions you make. But the intimacy of that is is that, you know, you're not in a room full of people experiencing this. It's very, very, it's very, I can't think of a better word than intimacy, but there's something that, that one of the podcasts that I mentioned earlier, Brain on Nature, was a perfect example. This um, I listened to it and wrote about it a couple of weeks ago, an Australian podcast about a woman discussing how, how her brain injury had been, um, she recovered from a brain injury very slowly through going out into nature. And I don't know who the sound artist was. I can't remember the name of the sound artist that worked on it, but it was just the most beautiful thing of this woman talking very, very personally about the changes in her body and her perception and noise. And anybody here who's had a migraine, that's what she was kind of describing when everything is just too intense. And she took us into a coffee shop to give us a sense of what that felt like. And then she took us into nature she took us to the beach she took us into the forest and the sound was astonishing and it was almost overwhelming and I just don't think I would have got that same experience from sort of switching on the radio and getting on with my day. Mm -hmm. Dario? I think I suppose it's the diversity of the possibilities of sound I mean it's not wasn't too long ago that you know everything was sort of filtered in the UK through a sort of BBC do you know what I mean that kind of BBC style and that defines what national audio sounds like in the UK and similar thing with with NPR in the States now I know that a lot of podcasts are based on that sort of NPR sound but all of a sudden it you know it could be 
friends talking in their in their bedroom or you know lots of different kind of like experimental sound arts and aesthetics you can find podcasts about that and the diversity of the subject matter and they can be talked about in that way that isn't confined to the broadcast flow so you know conversations go on forever so it's kind of I think the, the listening experience I agree exactly with what you're saying it's almost sort of both interactive and kind of voyeuristic at the same time so we're being addressed and we kind of feel like we're being addressed personally but then also it's like we're dropping in on somebody else's conversation when maybe we shouldn't be you know it's it can be that personal so yeah there's lots of different aspects to that I think. Ella any thoughts? Sorry to give a slightly fudgy answer but all I can sort of think of is it what you consider a podcast to sound like depends on what you consider a podcast to be. Mm. Because it's easy to talk about them as if they're one entire thing, but they vary massively from genre to genre, from culture to culture, from what kind of podcast they are. I mean, you're talking about all the NPR podcasts, but of course that's national public Mm. radio. They were all originally radio programs. So why do we consider those to be what podcasts sound like? when that's not originally where they even came from. So is it those highly stylized, ah, a a woman has been killed, let's solve it, podcasts. (laughs) Is that what a podcast is? And how structured and story-driven, is that what a podcast is? Or is it the more relaxed, chatty podcasts? Or is it the interview podcasts? Like American podcasting sounds incredibly different in terms of sound from British podcasts, because the big British podcasts here are very informal i think it is sort of pulling back from the whole um bbc received pronunciation thing where they're like yeah let's be a bit more let's be be a bit more looser let's have northern people on (laughs) (laughs) which is why it can be such a nightmare when the bbc try and make their own podcasts and you're like (laughs) they're from the midlands i don't understand um but yeah but i would say it's not even about sound for me in what i consider a podcast to sound like or seem like the podcast that I like and the podcast that I come back to regardless of where they're from or format or genre are the ones where I feel it's not even intimacy it's where I feel like I know the people involved and I feel like they're my friends and instead of like it being oh, I'll you know I'll listen to a podcast or I'll watch a film or I'll watch a tv show it's I'll spend a, an hour with my podcast friends <laughs> and I, I reckon that's well, that's, that's a lot of why people my age get into podcasts now, because they'll be like, I'll just spend some time with my podcast friends. That's great. Yeah, I think there are also some like bigger picture structural things that we can point to, like a lot of podcasts survive on global niche audiences, you know, really, really precisely targeted um, audiences that, you know, you're not going to find just in Brighton, but you need to kind of cast your net wider and, and go around the world to find people interested in you know, collecting miniature doll hairbrushes or whatever. The way a lot of them are funded, many of them are funded on this kind of freemium model where you're giving away the audio and you're expecting people to um, come to your gigs, buy your gig tickets or buy your merchandise. There's some of those kind of larger structural things, which I think Mark Podcasting is distinct and different from from a lot of other audio content. And that this kind of connection back to how they're funded and how people engage with them commercially is the next sort of thing that I want to talk about. Has anybody here, have any of you or anybody in the audience ever been to the Podcast Movement Conference in the U.S.? This is this annual conference that is massive. 3,000, 4,000 people 
go to a big conference venue in, I went to the one in Chicago a few years ago. Last year's was in Orlando. Most of them are there. And there's a sort of cult-like feeling around this, uh, this big conference. Most of them are there to learn how to monetize their podcasts, to learn how to kind of make their hobby into something that is going to generate some income and be commercially successful. So, Dario, you said you shouldn't start a podcast if your goal is to try and make money. So I guess I just kind of want to talk about this. Why not? Why shouldn't you? Well, I, I meant that if you're getting into podcasting with the aim of making money, that's very, very difficult to, to, from, to start from scratch and say, that's where I'm going to end up. I think it's fine if you start a podcast and you, you're not worrying about that. It's the kind of distinction I would make. Um, I don't know. It's really hard for me to answer that question because I don't have a monetized podcast at all. You know what I mean? You don't, so, have, a, you don't have a financial brain. No, I don't. I, and I've got a privileged position that actually I have a job that... that pays me and I can do this kind of on the side. So it's difficult for me to know what to say about that. I mean, I know the market is very different in America than it is here. Just the, you know, the, the possibilities of monetization in that market is a, lot, is a lot broader. I think we're all going through this problem of how do we monetize the internet again more, more broadly. So you know, the internet itself, when you go back to iTunes, when that was set up, it was end-to-end -end encrypted. It's from, I mean, Steve Jobs is really the father of how podcasting developed because he didn't put the facility to monetize the content. He was only interested in selling more iPods as it was at mm. the time. So that created podcasting in the way that it developed early on. And now which people are trying to find a way to solve that, to go back to kind of monetization and commercialization. That's the way I see it. Ella? Ooh, yeah. money. Um, <laughs> is it yeah. a problem? Yeah. Well, of course it's a problem, but that's a, it's a problem for the entirety of the arts industry. It's not just a issue specific to podcasting. Podcasts are probably more difficult to monetize than perhaps other projects because you know if you are I'm going to be a playwright, I'll put on a play above a pub, and whatever money we make from it, we make from it. But in podcasting, you've got to do a lot of work for free before you then can even start to think about it, getting any of the money back. And then that is obviously difficult. And it means if, if it's not something that you're just doing for fun or to experiment or to see what comes from it, if you're doing it to, to, to make your podcast millions, um, you're going to get frustrated very, very quickly. <laughs> There seem to be ways that people are circumventing this. I, I, mean, I don't think it's a money spinner, and it's not going to be a money spinner in the near future unless you are, my dad wrote a porno, and presumably, you know, that was a slow ascent. But there are other ways to... I mean, there are t two sort of points here. In this country, I think, a podcast is... Someone, you making a podcast is part of a bigger career, so it's like, it's like the side dish to whatever else it is that you're doing that's making you money. So if you are a celebrity coming back to these idiots, but if you are a celebrity and you're trying to build your profile and you know, you've got a, a load of mates who are similarly not very famous, then yes, you bring them all on and yes, I've got this is just something I'm doing. But it can be, you know, if you're part of a media operation, I mean, for instance, the FT, I'm freelance by the way, so I'm not trying to flog you the FT, but the FT does, you know, newspapers, massive struggle, but the FT does do a, a lot of podcasts on the side and it's part of the sort of vast media portfolio that the FT has so it can afford to do it, but you wouldn't, you know, that's the only way really it's sustainable. But if you look at other people in other professions, comedians all have podcasts now, but they're also out on the road doing their, their gigs. 
my dad wrote a porno, have merchandise, they have live shows, they, they fill well, up they the album also Albert all have Hall. entirely separate and the, careers. They do, and they haven't given up their careers. Yeah. They haven't given up their jobs because they say that they don't, you know, if they gave it their full attention, it would just, the whole thing would probably crumble. But they do fill up massive, you know, I was going to say stadiums, that's not true, but, you know, small arenas now. And a lot of, you know, the London Podcast Festival, that in itself is a, is a real money spinner. If you can transfer your podcast to the stage or into merchandise, then it's yeah. looking a bit better mm. for podcasts in this country which don't have that sort of financial grounding. And just to say as well, it's like, you know, then you get people like David Tennant who starts a podcast who doesn't really need to, but it's probably just another revenue stream for him because he will get advertisers. So I think like that relationship between advertising and podcasting, both in terms of how it does generate economic possibilities, but also whether podcasting that has advertising in it just then sounds like commercial radio again. So dovetailing into this, uh, or expanding this kind of idea of monetization and money a bit further. So there's two things that I'd like to just kick around for a minute. So one is branded content podcasting. Lots of production houses, like Gimlet, for example, have an arm where they're producing, Gimlet produces Dot Future, which is a Microsoft branded content podcast. So that's one way of generating money if you're a producer producing podcasts for a big company that's going to pay you. The other thing that I want to talk about is paywall podcasting. Because over the summer, I mentioned in the in the first question, Luminary launched to much fanfare with $100 million behind it, 100% subscription service for podcasts. And they collected some very, very beautiful, well-made podcasts like Love and Radio, brought it under the Luminary umbrella, found some other celebrities like Conan O'Brien and Trevor Noah to be podcast hosts for them. They've done this off the back of a bunch of really high-profile, big paywall failures, Audible Originals, that has been virtually wound down to nothing in recent months. Wondery has tried a paywall, Panoply have tried a paywall, Slate has tried a paywall, all of them have failed. What do you make of paywall podcasting? Is it the future? I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea, but the difficulty is putting... Oh, what's the what's the idiom I'm looking for? But it's, it's about putting ev everything back in the box after it's already out. So if you had one platform for all podcasts and it was £10 a month, yeah, I'd pay that. I'll get all my podcasts from that one place. That does make me slightly nervous, so it make one company very, very powerful, but mm -hmm. So we've got all of these, however many podcasts you said at the beginning, that are already on the internet 700,000. 700,000. And there's, there's, that's probably, there's probably some more already by, probably, yeah. by, by the time you did your opening speech. But so the, the incentive is, with all that stuff out there, why then go to another paywalled app? No, I, it's I, difficult. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, again, I wouldn't do it, and I love podcasts because it's like that doesn't seem like a useful use of my money. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. That, uh, just speaking for me as a as a listener right now, I could listen to the end of time and still have enough podcasts not to pay ten pound a month, and I can't see how a package of products, podcast products, would incentivize me enough to listen. Particularly because I'm, I almost sort of politically want to listen to more independent stuff than stuff that is produced on a on a big scale it needs to sort of get to this point where tv is where you've got netflix and you've got amazon and a lot of people subscribe to both most people subscribe to one of those and i don't know about you but the the thought that is it called apple there's a new apple one coming out isn't there tv um apple tv yeah is it called yeah, apple tv yeah. 
And, you know, as soon as I heard about that, I thought, oh, another one, you know. And, and, and I think that that was fairly, a lot of people felt that, like, you know, we, we've got enough. And if you, with the podcast model, if you have lots of networks, if you have sort of seven or eight networks all trying to launch paywalls at once, then you've kind of screwed it slightly. You know, it's a similar thing that's proving extremely problematic to newspapers at the moment. The Times and the FT and the Telegraph now has paywalls, but the Guardian doesn't, so everyone's going to the Guardian. And, you know, and, and it's a constant sort of agonizing, how do we make this work? You know, do you go for maximum traffic and advertising, or do you go for a more sort of niche, smaller audience who will pay their subscription? And no one's quite nailed it yet. I think TV has almost nailed it, but you know that that's, that's going to change because... Apple's going to stride in there and then there'll be more and then, you know, we'll be back to square one again. So mm -hmm. basically I'm saying I don't know in a very long-winded sort of way. <laughs> okay. So if I can come back quickly to talking about Netflix and Prime, as, as you say, it's like, oh, that's like £10 each and that's all my TV. Brilliant. Including the license fee, obviously. I don't not pay <laughs> the license fee. But that monopoly, which is probably bad but also quite useful mm -hmm. in terms of the admin of our entertainment lives is already on the verge of being dismantled because all like Disney's going to start their theirs, NBC are going to start their own service, BBC are going to start their own service. So all of these companies are already saying that they're going to pull all of their content from those big easy channels. Well, I say channels, like what a platforms. Platforms. Yeah. What a what an analog term that I used <laughs> at a digital <laughs> event. But and already I'm, I've kind of thought, oh, that's going to be a lot of stuff that I've got to... How do I pick what I subscribe yeah, to? It franchises the whole model, doesn't it? And yeah, it's they've, huge, they've shoot, everyone's shooting themselves, about to shoot themselves yeah. in the foot. It's a huge, I think it's a really important phenomenon, maybe the most important phenomenon of this particular moment in time for podcasting is this idea of platformization. So, you know, BBC Sounds is a great example. They've pulled in all of the BBC audio content under the umbrella of BBC Sounds. Previously, you used to be able to find it in different places. And what was once this open public commons, if you will, is now being sort of cordoned off into all of these little private fiefdoms. And I don't, I don't really know what to make of that as a listener. I, like you, I don't want to have to subscribe to 10 different things or even look in 10 different places. I want to go to Stitcher or Audio Boom or Apple Podcasts and find everything I want. I don't, I don't want to faff around with yeah. other platforms. We could be entering in, into a sort of two-tier system where there are, you know, the sort of big mainstream podcasts, star podcasts, and then, you know, independent outside podcasts, which in a way, I mean, it's, it's slightly different, but the film industry and, and TV sort of have gone through these kind of reorganizations of structure around economic logic. And I think we're kind of, I mean, I'm not saying I know what's going to happen, but I think we're in, in that phase right now. But maybe it could actually be quite a good thing for independent podcasters. If they were to get their act together and you know, if there was one paywall podcast service where all of the big podcasts went, um, all the big commercial ones, all the, all the B-list celebrities asking their friends questions, and if all of those were you know, cornered off, and then here's all the other people who get space. crowded out, the creative space. Maybe it could work out quite well for them, but then again, they'd get successful and then they'd have to, yeah. Yeah, they'd they'd have have to run be, off to the... They'd be the harvesting the, from the creative space very yeah. quickly, wouldn't they? And mm -hmm. then we'd just be left with the people that's, going... But, but that's exactly what happens in cinema. Yeah. You, know? yeah. you all mentioned TV, so let's just kind of put that in a podcast context. Welcome to Night Vale a few months ago signed a uh, TV deal. Well, Welcome to Night Vale is a very famous long-running, trippy, surreal podcast where all conspiracy theories are real. 
they've just signed a, a, a TV deal. Um, I thought that was quite a lot. Didn't, didn't they sign that a few years ago and nothing's happened with it? It hasn't happened yet. I think they signed it at the beginning of the end of 2018 or the beginning of 2019. It, it, it's been a while. Nothing has yeah. happened yet. Other people like Alex Bloomberg from Gimlet has produced Homecoming, but also Alex Inc. So are any of you worried that the podcasting space, um, similar to what you were just suggesting, Ella, is going to become a sort of creative sandbox from which TV production companies are just going to poach talent, that people are going to kind of try stuff out and then disappear from the podcast scene? Yeah, I think that's already happening. I think that because it's cheaper to make a podcast series than it is to shoot one pilot. And I think that it's it's a great way as well for testing out ideas and testing out the story without investing all of that all of that money that obviously TV requires. It's interesting because I, I quite enjoyed the um, was it Dirt, Dirty John? Have you seen seen that? Because I enjoyed that podcast. And then the TV it made it TV. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't podcasting into TV. It it's really interesting how yeah, it kind of it took away its original its real voice yeah. and it just became a TV thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like now, you know, it's happened on the BBC with Brexit cast. I've, I tried to watch that the other day and it's just kind of like, God, there's four people sat in a cupboard. You know what I mean? It, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to translate. So, yeah, podcasting is a sort of way of testing out the ideas. But then once it goes to TV, it just becomes TV for me. It just doesn't bother me in the slightest. I like that TV is, you know, looking a bit further. Actually, it can do the world of podcasting, an enormous amount of good because it gives podcasting a good rep. You know, people are going to think, wow, there's some really good stuff going on. Or, you know, conversely, crap, what is this crap? You know, <laughs> For instance, with Brexit cast, I think it wasn't so great um, on TV, but I think it's actually driven people to the podcast. I had a few people message me on that, you know, when it started saying, well, what is this? And I'm like, just go, go back to the podcast. And, and so, so I think actually to have that sort of cross-pollination isn't a bad thing for, for for the sort of podcasting reputation. Because if you think, I mean, going back to your, your figures right at the beginning about the amount of people making podcasts, there's also an enormous amount of people listening to podcasts, but there's still a huge untapped market. And I think it's worth thinking about, actually, there are still a whole lot of people who don't really know what a podcast is, or if they do, they've only ever listened to one or two and sort of drifted back to their own habits. So, so all of this, I think, is grist to the mill of, Podcasts are great. There's, there's fantastic stories being told here. There's fantastic documentaries being made. Look, look at what we're doing. So, yeah. so I see it as quite positive on that. Front. I, I, I'm not really bothered by it either because I think they're two totally different animals. I think what works in podcast is is distinctive. It, it connects up with a lot of the characteristics you were talking about: intimacy, authenticity, familiarity, um, companionship, all of those things. And it's not something that's new to podcasting. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I listened to on cassette when I was a kid, when it transitioned into a TV show, I, most people thought it was a terrible failure because the imaginative, creative engagement that I was using in my own head to kind of create the characters is taken away from me in the TV space. So I think, I think they're two different things, and I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm glad you brought up Hitchhikers because it sort of leads me to what I was about to say anyway, is that it's not a thing that's unique to podcasting at all. Some of the best things on TV or in film or in culture started small, either in the theatre and then became a big movie, or on radio, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like Pretty much all big, certainly comedies on the TV, started off as a Radio 4 series. There's League of Gentlemen, there's uh, Mighty Boosh. Um, I, this is my like topic of 
expertise. Why can I not think of more shows? But um, but it's it's what people do. It's how people hone their craft. They do something that is cheap and where they may not get a huge amount of, te- of attention, but it can work quite well because if something doesn't go well, then it's fine. No one spotted it. But if it goes well, then people go, oh, that'll be... That'll be interesting. So it's it's you know it's people have been doing this forever. It's and between publishing and film as well. Yeah, publishing. Yeah, all the arts bleed into each other. It's not it's not a bad thing. Great. So I'd just like to have one more question, one or two more questions. So just really, really quickly, and I think it's probably best to start with you, Fiona. How do you discover new podcasts to listen to? I beg on Twitter for people to tell me what they're doing. I think um, my experience of how I discover podcasts probably shouldn't be the same as everybody else's because my job is to tell people about podcasts because I work for a newspaper or several newspapers. The idea is that I should be looking for new stuff, something that's freshly launched or about to launch. Um, So I think the last time we met, I said it isn't a particularly well PR'd world. It's getting a little bit more slick, but actually... PR marketing in the land of podcasts is still a little bit rubbish. People tend to try and sort of do, do what they call a soft launch. We're just putting our podcast out there, but we're not going to tell you, Fiona, until eight weeks into the run, and I'm like, God, God damn it. So, you know, for me, it's a different thing, but my plan and other writers is to be the ones to tell you about podcasts. And, and actually, there's, a, there's still quite a lack of critical analysis, I think, around podcasting. I don't know how you guys find your podcast, but you'll see lots of listicles on the internet or, you know, the sort of best podcasts of the month or the year. But, you know, real in-depth writing about single podcasts is still quite rare. But um, it is certainly a growing area. Ella, how do you find podcasts? Not on those lists on the internet where Good. they list yeah. the... But you do read all my reviews. Oh, of course, <laughs> obviously. Yes, thank you. Obviously. <laughs> Yeah, routinely. Uh, but no, not those lists on the internet where it's like um, the 50 best podcasts that you should listen to this year. And it's all the same ones that were on the list that they did last year with maybe one new one. And it's like, how can people keep writing stuff about podcasts for people who don't listen to podcasts? Because anyone who's a podcast fan will just go through this list and go, well, yes, I've listened to all those. Where, where, where do I find out new ones? Word of mouth, I think, is always the best in terms of things that will actually get me to actually listen to things. Yeah, actual personal recommendations from people I, I like who go, oh, I just listened to this thing. You'd probably, you'd probably really like it. I'll go, oh, okay, I'll give that a go. Um, some, yeah, sometimes on social media, but rarely from the actual feed of that podcast. I often go through and I go, oh, I'll follow loads of podcasts and I'll eventually get around to listening to them. Never happens. Maybe twice. <laughs> Maybe it's happened twice, but I don't know. It's it's hard to find new things. And then and then you find new things and then you don't like them. And then you go, Oh, I'll I'll listen to my dad wrote a porno again for them. Oh, Dario, how about you? How do you find new podcasts? <laughs> yeah, the same really. I mean it's recommendations. I mean I'm quite lucky in the fact that I'm networked up to most of the researchers who research podcasting. <laughs> so I'm not short of recommendations. But sometimes I mean, one of the things about the platforms, if you've got a good app it depends how well the recommendation algorithm works. Mm. Sometimes you can get some good stuff on there. And I think, obviously, with the Google search function starting to be used more and more, that could actually change what podcasting is structurally. Because, as you said at the beginning, you talked about episodic, you know, and the most famous podcast is called Serial because it's about seriality mm. is seen as the way that podcasts work structurally. But if everybody starts searching for individual subjects, 
rather than series, then what might happen is we might move into an era where it's a bit like iTunes now, where you get the 99p one song rather than an album. So that could change the way that we get to know of new podcasts. Great. So I'd just like to have one podcast recommendation from you both with like a 10-word pitch on why, it, why we should all listen. So I really love a podcast called Heavyweight with Jonathan Goldstein, which is sort of like time travel therapy. I'll leave it at that. That's so mean because you've had time to prepare with your 10 words, haven't you? <laughs> I can't do it in I, 10 I words. I emailed it to you weeks ago. Yes, you did, but I thought about it then, but not since then. Um, have you heard George's podcast, which is a question, but also is the name of his podcast? Um, has anyone has anyone heard George's podcast? I mean, it's George the Poet is the host. It is an adventure in uh, in fiction, in music, in politics, and beautiful sound design. And I could go on, but I won't carry on. Okay, I'm going to recommend something called the Parapod, which is a chat cast by comedians chatting, but it's really good. So therefore, I have to tell you about it. It's um two comedians one of which is a part-time comedian who is a handyman the rest of the week is absolutely convinced that ghosts are real all conspiracies are real and he's a massive fan of erasure and has massive outbursts of rage and it's really well produced and it's one of those instances of no one would write this because they would think it was stupid okay Sorry to interrupt, but that's classic podcasting, isn't it? Like, yeah. I'm a podcaster who is a handyman for the rest of the time. That's, yeah. that's how it works, people. Yeah, it's too, I must say um, the other host is, is a full-time writer and, and comedian, and he edits and produces it to make it really good. I think they record it for like three hours, and then it's only like 45 minutes long. They do actually do their work to make it good, but it's actually very funny. So the one big problem with podcasting that we haven't discussed and never gets discussed is language barrier. So you can only listen, if you only speak English, like most English people do, um, you can't listen to podcasts from around the world. And there's a podcast called Radio Atlas, yes, which brilliant. has an app on the phone which translates everything that's being said. So you can listen to a podcast in French and German, wherever, from around the world. You look at your phone and it, and it has subtitles there that you can read. And they're very short, very personal <coughs> stories. You know, some of them are political, some of them are very, you know, personal, as I say. But yeah, that's great. Brilliant. Okay, so can you join me in thanking Fiona, Ella, and Dario? And then we'll turn things over to Sarah. Hello, I hope you're enjoying what you're hearing. You're listening to a special episode of For Your Ears Only, a live recording of a podcasting day that we put together for the Brighton Digital Festival in October of 2019. And we could not have done it without the support of Arts Council England, Bloomsbury Publishing, the British Academy, the University of Sussex, and the University of Brighton. Thanks for spending your time with us. Now back to the party. So the next session is going to be divided between two speakers. We're fortunate enough to have Todd Jordan from Brilliant Noise, who's going to speak to us first. He's going to talk about some of the issues that um, 
that, that he felt he wanted to raise. And then the second speaker will be Melita Dennett, who will be talking about her experience of working as the podcaster in residence at ACCA, which, if anyone doesn't know, is the Attenborough Centre for Creative Arts. And that section was very much about how do cultural organisations get the benefit of podcasting? What, what can they do? How can that enable them to connect to different audiences in a way that other medium don't do? So that, that's what we're going to be doing in, in this section. So without further ado, I shall pass you over to Todd Jordan from Brilliant Noise, who's going to talk to you about podcast cash and the elephant in the room okay over to you todd who am i i work for a consultancy called brilliant noise i'm senior creative consultant i'm involved with a lot of new media for big brands and storytelling as a as an expertise but i also do a lot of work with podcasts podcasting for clients podcasting for myself and i also organize the brighton podcast meetup and i am here to talk about money Money, money. So whenever I hear people talk about podcasting, especially when they're either really new to it and just about to think about how to get into it, or they've been doing it for a little while and it's kind of going okay and they think that maybe maybe I could make a go of this podcasting thing, and they're sort of starting to think, well, now what? Sooner or later, money always kind of is the, is the big topic that comes up. It's the elephant in the room. So I thought I'd spend 10 minutes or so chatting about money, which I know is super dull. I'll try and be less dull. Right, so to begin with one question. Who is the richest person in America today? Does anybody know the answer? Close, no, it's Doug. Doug has recently started making a podcast about ducktails in his bedroom. He uses cushions as a temporary sound baffler. He's only put out three episodes so far, and the third episode is an apology for being late with the original third episode. But Doug has already been able to afford two houses, he can quit his job, and he's hired somebody else to do the podcast for him, all as a result of starting this one podcast in his bedroom. Everybody wants to be like Doug. That is why everybody gets into podcasting, because of how much money you can make so very, very easily. It's quite hard to be like Doug. We can't all be podcast millionaires overnight with three episodes. I run the Brighton Podcast Meetup, as established. That's Ollie Catchpole, who sat over there at the moment, talking at one of the recent ones. And over and over and over again, the questions that come up at these events, whenever we have the Q&As, are how can I be like Doug? When will my show be profitable? When can I go full-time? Exactly how much money do podcasters earn? When do I get the cash? And it's just such a weird question and I don't understand why anybody thinks that you can get into podcasting and make loads of money but they do I'm sorry if some of you think this and I'm disillusioning you but it's just super weird I don't know why are you so weird don't be like that the best that you can get rather than cash is we get a lot of free pizza and beer at the Brighton podcast meetup so please do come along at the next one it's all generously provided by brilliant noise I had to include that slide, otherwise they would fire me. So, you can make some money from podcasting if you really want to, but maybe you shouldn't. Maybe that's a bad idea. I'm here to talk about how you can do it if you want, but why maybe you shouldn't. Because a podcast can be profitable, for sure, but your podcast probably won't be. But I think that's fine. I don't think it's a big problem. But that's not to say that you don't deserve something for your hard work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at 
four big ways that podcasters are generating money. I'm going to look at the pros and the cons, and it's going to be quite dull and money-centered. Sorry, but it won't last very long, and then I'll sit down. So, way number one, you can sell ads. Way number two, sell merch. Way number three, sell content. And way number four, sell yourself. So these are the four ways. There might be a, a hypothetical fifth way. Scientists have yet to prove it. But before I dive in, I'm going to go a little bit more detail on them. I, I want to quote the author David Foster Wallace, as all good presentations do. There's a very infamous David Foster Wallace speech where he tells a story about two fish swimming along in the ocean. They meet a third fish, and the fish says, oh, isn't the water lovely today? And then they go on their way, and the two fish say to each other, what's water? My point is that this stuff is water. You know it. You already know it. You just don't spend probably much time thinking about it because you already know it. So don't expect any huge revelations. This is all stuff that you know. But just I thought, hey, maybe we'll just spend a little bit of time thinking about it thinking about the water. So, we're going to get into the water. Number one, selling ads. Among you that already have podcasts, how many of you currently sell ads? I would love to know. Oh my god, that's zero people. That's awesome. That is the correct amount of people. None of you should sell ads. It's awful. Um, that's, that's not true. But I did want to get into how it works. So, it is obviously the most common model that, that you'll come across for how people make money from their podcast. The way it generally works is that advertisers will pay something called, which is called a CPM. That stands for cost per miller. That is a dollar amount per 1,000 listens that an episode gets in the first 30 days of its release. So a bit of maths to get, get into the example. One um, law, the podcast law. I don't know if anyone listens to Aaron Mankey's storytelling and folklore podcast law. His cost per miller, which I know because I met him at a bar in Chicago and he told me when he was drunk, is $10. So let's say that he gets 50,000 listens per episode. That's a guess. He didn't tell me that. Within the first 30 days. That would be a, that would be a good number to expect for a podcast as popular as Aaron Mankey's law is. So the maths on that is 50,000 listens in the first 30 days and then CPM of $10. So what that equals is $500 per ad per episode. Now, Law, he runs an ad at the start of the episode, and start at the end, and he puts out one episode per week. So what that means is that I've been able to calculate that Aaron Mankey brings in around $52,000 per year from his podcast, just from running the ads. Very roughly speaking, that's about the same as what a, uh, a postman or a post postal worker uh, earns on average in America. So it's not bad. You can absolutely make a living from that. That's not to say that that's the only way Aaron Mankey earns his living. He's a graphic designer, he's a novelist, and he's also sold the podcast rights of his show to James Cameron. So he's doing absolutely fine. But 52,000 US dollars a year for boshing a couple of ads on your show, that's fine. Yes, sure, why not? I'll take that. As long as you can keep it up, because the problem is if you publish one episode that gets slightly less listens in the first 30 days, then your CPM might be halved genuinely overnight. It can just happen because it's all done by an algorithm. Or if you miss a week, or if you overrun with the content that you need to tell and suddenly have to cut an ad, it really, really has a huge knock-on effect, and it can be very, very stressful. So the pros of selling ads are, yeah, it's, it can be really big money, 
but it does also equal big pressure. And if this were to become the sole means of your income, if you don't manage to sell the movie rights to James Cameron, then you're going to have some sleepless nights, which is an excellent time to talk to you about Casper mattresses. <laughs> Let me tell you, folks, that these mattresses are comfortable, affordable, and they come in a plastic fit box that is so small you will not believe. Hooray for Casper mattresses. Okay. Number two is selling merch. This is a less bad idea, but it's, it also comes with a few different caveats and pros and cons. So we are talking t-shirts, we are talking mugs, we are talking hats for cats and small dogs. I even know someone who has their own brand of condoms to support their podcast. It's super weird. Um, so if you have a half-decent logo and you know, your audience like what you do, then the chances are that someone somewhere will want to buy something with your logo on it. And you don't even really need to advertise it this. You can just mention it on your podcast, which is free advertising for yourself, doesn't cost you anything, that's fine. As long as you can deal with the outlay of the initial raw goods and you don't mind having a box full of t-shirts in your garage, then you should be fine, as long as you do it right. Uh, I do know another podcaster who bought the t-shirts first, then recorded his first episode, and then found out that there was a hugely successful podcast with the same name as his one. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear. So definitely don't be like that guy. Do your research. Maybe wait until you've been going, I don't know, a year, maybe, before you like think about getting a hat for a cat or a small dog or something like that. But essentially, it can work as long as you've got the right sort of podcast for this. It needs to be something that's slightly lighthearted, can't be too serious, and you need to have a logo that people would actually want to wear, maybe. So yeah, selling merch. Pros? Pretty low effort, doesn't take much on your part. Cons, it can be unreliable. You can end up with a load of condoms in your garage. The third one is selling content. This is the sort of sophisticated aunt to selling merch. This is the idea that if people already like the podcast that you're making, if they like the thing that you do, why not give them more of that thing that you do, but ask them for money? So it can mean running a Patreon, subscription services where you have sort of subscribers and supporters, quite often they end up with early access to episodes or they might get exclusive extra content, all the things that were cut from those episodes, or they might get bonus seasons. I believe Within the Wires publish an extra season every summer and winter equinox that only their subscribers get access to, which is great because it means if you have enough of an audience for people to like what you do, then why wouldn't a percentage of them be happy to pay for more of that thing. It's kind of win-win. The only catch with it is that it is so much work. It is so much work because you're effectively making another podcast so you can put that podcast in your podcast while you podcast for the people that like your podcast. It's a lot of podcasts to do. And so, so many times people launch this kind of program and then have to immediately issue an apology when it comes to actually delivering the goods because they just get swamped, life gets in the way, and it becomes so, so hard to fulfill all of your promises. The other thing that you need to do is definitely, before you try and do this sort of thing, do make sure you have a good size listener base, because otherwise you'll be creating a whole new series of your podcast just for one person somewhere, one loyal fan. Not everybody gets to be my dad wrote a porno straight away, or at all. So, selling content, it is rewarding, because you're doing the good thing. And hopefully the people are liking the good thing because they like you and that's the good thing. But it can be exhausting if you don't do it at the right time 
you don't do it with realistic ideas about what it's going to involve. So I'm nearly done. We're just going to look at the fourth one, which is selling yourself now. In many ways, thank you, this is the most important one of all, and it's the one that most people seem to forget. And I guess I could have, if I'd only had one minute, I could have probably just skipped straight to this one. This is the good one. It just means that when you do your podcast right, one of the great things about that as a medium is that you are the product, and I don't mind being a product, as long as the product is good. If you're a storyteller, then tell stories. And if you're a consultant, then consult. And if you're passionate and enthusiastic about any topic at all, your podcast is your chance for you to show that and show how good you are at it. As long as you stay in touch with your audience, as long as you engage with them, make sure that they have ways to reach out to you when they need it, then this kind of being you becomes the whole business. And the podcast is really just an avenue to make that happen. When you do it right, you end up looking amazing. So the pros are selling yourself, it helps you, and it helps you be good. The cons are you have to actually be good. You can't start out attempting to be an expert in something and then expect people to pay you for that if you're not actually an expert. So I'm closing now. This is, this is the third act. In summary, if you do want to be like Doug, and don't we all, you can sell ads, you can sell merch, you can sell content, and you can sell yourself. Thanks. <laughs> Shall I sit down now? Am I sitting down now? Okay, I'm sitting down now. Be prepared. Brace yourself. Those four examples that you gave, Todd, I got the sense from you that selling yourself was the one that you felt was the most effective. Is that a correct hunch, would you say? You get the most for your money with that one. I suppose that in order to make actual walking around money from your podcast, you would probably have to make such a specific type of podcast that I really just don't think it would be fun for 99.9% .9 of people because that's kind of missing the whole point of the medium is that it's supposed to be about self-expression, dad. So if you find a way to correctly sell yourself, then even though you may get a fraction of what that money was, you're, you're not really having to do any work for that money. You're doing something that you would have wanted to do anyway, and that's free money. So it's about having a sense of what you want to sell, which mm. is yourself and what it is that you wish to offer. That's what I would say. Brilliant. Well, Todd, thank you very much um, for that. So could we all thank Todd Jordan for his excellent presentation there? Um, and that I would now like to invite Melita Dennett to come up and join me. So as I said earlier, Melita Dennett is, the, I would like to call her the podcast in residence for the Attenborough Centre of the Creative Arts. When Martin and I were putting this sort of programme together, we were thinking, what is it that people are going to want to know who are coming to this sort of event? And one thing we thought, as Todd correctly surmised, is that people like to know how to make money out of podcasting and whether that opportunity exists. Another thing that struck me as a person who works a lot in cultural organisations is how can you use this medium to talk about your organisation or get a message out about, about um, to an audience that perhaps you might not be able to reach otherwise. So it struck me that this was a really interesting thing to look at in terms of how can organisations use podcasts? How can it help them connect to audiences that they perhaps might not reach otherwise? Um, what does that give audiences? And is this something that you might be able to use within organisations that you work for? So Melita, tell me a little bit about what you do for, for the Attenborough Centre in terms of the podcasting. Well, they approached me in late... 
2017, when did we start? 2018. Just with floating the idea. And I think it was one of those circumstances when they thought, well, these things called podcasts exist. We ought to do one. And I think it very much came from like, uh, yeah, but how are we going to do it? And what are we going to do? So they approached me because they knew me for my radio work. And I'd done a lot of coverage of events at the Attenborough Centre, interviewed a lot of artists, performers, creators at the Attenborough Centre. So I thought, well, fine, let's dip a toe in the water and let's see what it's like. So there's nothing very, there's nothing avant-garde about it. They're quite sort of Radio 4 kind of pieces in many ways, but they're absolutely perfectly suited to the medium of podcasting. The work that the Attenborough Centre does is very diverse. It could actually fall into the weird shit category, quite a lot of it. Now, in Brighton, we're really lucky, and I would class myself amongst one of those people who goes, that looks like weird shit, I'm interested in that. So it's one of those places where you can offer people something quite difficult, something quite challenging. A lot of their work is around gender, feminism, sexuality, class deconstructing capitalism. So they're doing a lot of work which actually falls quite satisfactorily outside of what you might regard as the mainstream of theatrical and performance spaces. So in some ways, it's a bit of a hard sell because it's not like Sing Along A Sound of Music. You know, we get that. But what is a show which is being produced by a bunch of Belgians who are using gaming to describe how capitalism works. And you as an audience member come in and sit at a blackjack table and you're a banker and you're gaming the system. Incidentally, we all went broke. So how do you explain that to people? So I'm coming at it from a punter, which is um, quite an interesting sort of perspective. I'm not an expert, but I come along to the interview thinking, what on earth is this all about? So basically I get to ask the question, what on earth is this all about? But in a slightly more nuanced way than that. So I'm coming at it from an audience member. The uh, Attenborough Centre used to be the Gardner Arts Centre, and I used to go there in the 80s and 90s, and it introduced me to a lot of art forms. So I have a great love for the place, so you know, I don't have to sell it. I don't feel uncomfortable about selling it as a venue, because I like it. I go there as a punter, I like the space, it's got a fantastic auditorium in it, I like the flexibility, I like what they're doing, And I like the way that they are not shy about asking very challenging questions about where we are in society. So it's not something I have to kind of, you know, grip my teeth and clench my buttocks to talk about. So it's been very successful. It's seasonal. So there's a spring season, uh, sorry, there's an autumn season, a spring and spring season. So they do two seasons a year. So it's quiet over the summer because it's tied to the University of Sussex. So we're now in our fourth season. So I'm just prepping the first of our podcasts for this season. Let me ask you this. I have to put my hands up and say I'm, I am a podcast novice. One thing that really strikes me, and it's the sort of thing I think my mum would ask or my brother in Stockport, he'd say, but what is a podcast and what is it compared to radio? Because what you describe sounds to me like radio. So can you give a, an absolute beginner's answer of, of what is the difference between a radio and podcast? In this case, it's the delivery. So it's absolutely perfect to be delivered as a podcast format. So typically... They're kind of six to 12 minutes, six to 15 minutes, bite-sized interviews, which are mixed. If there's some audio I can mix in, I'll do that. And the aim of it is to have a very conversational, it's, it's very one-to-one, -one, quite chatty format. So it basically is me saying, as an audience member, what am I going to get from this? So they're designed that people listen to them in their coffee break or on a bus trip. 
you know, they're not hour-long ones like you might expect from some, some podcast formats. They're very, very bite-sized, and they're embedded into the website. They're distributed through social media. So they're absolutely perfect. If somebody sees something that's happening at the Attenborough Centre and they think, that looks like weird shit, I don't get it, they can plug themselves in for 10 minutes, and hopefully at the end of the 10 minutes, they actually get it which actually seems like an opportunity to listen to the Belgians. Yes. Uh, so the Belgians are the first clip. This is uh, two, two and a bit minutes of, of the weird shit Belgians. My name is Angelo Tess. I am a writer and an actor and a part of the artistic core of the Belgian company called Ontroerend Goed. We've been doing this for uh, over 15 years, and we make uh, theatre shows both for uh, the bigger stage and interactive work. A lot of your previous work deals with our ambivalence towards democratic institutions and our complicity in capitalism. Lies looks like a continuation of that. Yes. <laughs> Let's say that we, we don't do fiction. We try and grasp the world as it is, and that's basically impossible. So if you divide it into uh, smaller pieces, um, whether that's um, climate change or indeed uh, like a democratic deficit, or in this case, um, capitalism. We're not against that system because, to be honest, we don't have a better one. But it's a very, very flawed system and it needs change. Uh, and the only way to get there is to at least start and understand the, st the system. So you're a part of the system, whether you like it or not. It would have been easy and cynical to make a show where we pretended to be bankers and dressed up in, in fancy secondhand uh, grey suits, pretending to be snorting cocaine um, out of each other's whatever, and show people how bad bankers are. But it's too cliché and it's too easy. But there's a force in, in art, whether it's, it's movies and especially theatre, because it's about people doing something in front of other people at that moment. Um, and that's a force of empathy, where instead of showing you the 1% and um, showing you how, how bad they are and how a lot of them have morals and all that kind of crap, we put you as a visitor in the seat of the 1%. And we take you on that journey of, of how capitalism evolved and we give you the same choices. Because like I said, with that empathy, we think, we believe, that um, we can actually talk about the system and not just about um, a few bad people somewhere in a glass or concrete building. Audiences sometimes do feel a little nervous when they're asked to be a part of this. Tell me more about how the audience interacts with the piece. We do not like interactive theatre because very often it's just a way to mask the laziness of the theatre makers, as in, we don't know what to do here, let's get some people on stage and make them dance. That's not how we work. We bring the audience in and we divide them around a, a lot of beautiful custom-made, almost blackjack-like wooden tables. Um, there's one actor or croupier or guide for each table, and each table has seven visitors. So you'll be there with probably six strangers and immediately you'll become a bank and you'll be, I, I was going to say playing, because it, 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 it is actually playing, because you're, you're a part of a theatre show and you're playing a game. And th that's basically all you need to do. <laughs> it has to be pleasant for a 14-year-old teenager who basically doesn't know anything about banks and all that kind of stuff. And we've played the show, I think, over 200 times already in the last Because okay, so really, really what that illustrates is when, when you get something on radio, quite often you get an idiot's guide 
to a subject, you know, so it's explained to you as if you've never heard of this subject before and it's done in quite shallow terms. So doing the podcast makes an assumption that as a listener, you're already engaged to a certain extent with this subject and you can kind of launch straight into it because, um, you know, if, if someone's interested in some kind of Belgian piece about capitalism, you know, the headspace is already in Belgium and capitalism. So also what I want to do with the podcast is to give the audience members a feel for what to expect because that audience participation thing, especially for British people, you know, absolutely terrified of the concept of audience participation. Oh my God, I've got to stand up on stage and I've got to be gaming the system as a banker. So it's a kind of gentle way of leading people in to a, a what can I expect, really, which is so as a podcast, they've chosen to listen you can also, you know, the language there was fairly light, but the nature of podcasts is because you're listening personally and you're not like to be listening with children around. You know, you can talk about bankers snorting cocaine off of their whatevers and, you know, you can use stronger language than you might normally expect to, to find as well. So it's one of the great strengths of it, that, that sort of intimate, that intimate listen has, has been said before, but assuming a certain level of your audience as they come to the podcast I mean, what strikes me listening to that, Melita, is it's, it's about almost bringing Radio 4 to your organisation, so it gives you that space to explore. It's probably a, a just because I'm, I'm a bit Radio 4-y, that's all, probably. <laughs> but it gives you a space to explore an issue in depth, which might be quite difficult to do otherwise. I'm really interested as a radio performer, radio producer, in, in the medium and the intimacy and the space it gives you to explore issues. Why don't more organisations do this, use this medium? Why aren't more people doing it, is, was, was my question. Yeah, I mean, some of the... Subjects that we've touched on with, with performers, postnatal depression and it's all sorts of issues around gender and race. And, you know, some very, very personal stories have come through about why people created a particular artwork. And there's, you know, like I said, there's some very challenging stuff going on there. I think the reason that more people aren't doing it is what's been said earlier. It's easy, yeah, it's easy because you've got the technology to hand, but it's bloody difficult as well because it takes time it takes thought, it takes planning. So, you know, you have to do all your research, you have to work your questions out, you have to pin down the person you're going to be interviewing, you have to edit it, you have to mix it, you have to make sure it works, you've got all the distribution processes. And the most important thing I think as well that has also been touched on is actually consistency. So people would expect to have something fairly consistent. So, you know, how many blogs have you ever seen? It's like, hey, this is my first blog post. <laughs> You know, like everyone's a blogger. They've done their first blog post. I'm the worst blogger in the world. I do one a year. It's bloody great when I do do it, but you know. So it's, it's having that consistency. So with ACA, people know it's a seasonal thing. They know the ACA podcasts are going to be starting up if they're already following ACA. And so it does have that consistency. But, you know, there, there's a huge variety within that because every single subject matter is different and every approach will be different to, to the subject at hand. I think it's an incredibly democratic medium because you have access to the tools in your pocket to be able to create that. And one of the things it has done is it's opened up opportunities for people whose voices aren't normally heard or they're mediated by the mainstream media to talk about themselves. So younger people, BME people, people with mental health issues, trans people. So it's been a fantastic opportunity for people whose voices are marginalised to be able to, to express, express themselves. 
Uh, any questions or any other comments or thoughts? Yes, yes. It's, it's embedded on their website, but they do it on uh, Podomatic is the, the hosting, but it's embedded on the website, and social media, obviously, is the big one for distribution. It's, it's like concentric circuits, it's like a kind of ripple effect. So you've got the people who immediately engage with the Attenborough Centre, who look on their website, who pick up their brochure, who see their posters and go, oh, yes, Attenborough Centre, I know. I know it's going to be quality. I know it's going to be good. I'm interested. And they'll go to the website. They'll see the podcast is there. They'll engage with that immediately. Social media is absolutely valuable. I mean, we are obviously talking geographically to the students at the University of Sussex and the wider Brighton community. And they get shared around within the university as well. And, and the feedback I get from the Attenborough Centre is they very much like the relationships that they have with people. So they have a relationship with the Marlborough Theatre for some of their queer strands. The Marble will share them out. Um, City City, the cinema festival, they'll share it out. And they, they get a variety of number of hits. I and mean, I'm sure people are wondering, you know, how many hits do they get? Some of them get 30 or 40, and some of them get thousands. So depending on who it is, so they have some very high-profile names. So, for example, Chris Watson, who is the kind of go-to natural sound recordist, did a piece where he'd been recording the sounds globally of the sea. So he'd use hydrophones, so sounds underwater, above the water, and it was a durational piece. It was about 15, 20 minutes, and the idea was you would go and sit in a darkened room and be surrounded by sounds, and it finished off in Brighton with him dropping some hydrophones off the end of the pier, and of course the seagulls, which are unavoidable. So that one got several thousand hits. Um, there's a Brighton performer called Sue McLean, a performer and writer, who had a piece of work which I think was supported by the British Council and she took it off to Edinburgh. So then that got shared around Edinburgh. So I, I think there's, it, there's a multitude of different audiences. So you've got your local, who you would hope you know, to fill the bums on seats, and anecdotally it is working for bums on seats, which I'm really pleased about, otherwise I'd be out of a job. And then you've got it positioning the Attenborough Centre on a national platform as a place where creative work happens and people nationally can hear that. And obviously they work with a lot of international artists as well. So it positions them in European terms and in global terms. It's an extra string to their bow really. And there is that thing as well of people say that you have to tell people three times about something before it sinks in. So they've got the brochures, they've got the posters, they've got the website, and it's just an extra, it's an extra platform for them to talk about their work and publish what they're doing. One thing that strikes me is going back to Todd's um, presentation is how you pay for it. And it's obviously the Attenborough Centre has a public subsidy or it has a marketing budget that's, that's, that's paying for this. It would be quite difficult to generate money for this as an organisation Unless you did have that, I suppose. I think it would. I mean, this is part of their marketing budget. So effectively, if it brings in more bums on seats, it pays for itself. So it's, it's in that model. It's the punters, the punters who are paying for this because they're bringing the punters in. Um, yeah, I mean, doing something like this, you know, what the market for the arts, I, again, I don't know. I mean, the, the answer to a lot of these questions today has been, uh, who knows? I mean, who, who is actually going to pay for that? I would see it as being, uh, it's, it's, an, it's the adjunct to what they do. So if people here are running a community organisation, if it gets more people through the door of your community organisation, it gets you more funding, you know, you tick more boxes, 
So from that point of view, it's an advert, you know, and I'm not going to pretend it's anything other than an advert because that, that is what it is. That's great. Well, Melita, thank you very much for your thank time. Thank you very much, everyone. And, um, yeah, very enjoyable. Right, we are now moving into the last section of today, which is where we invite Paul uh, Nataraj to come up. So Paul Nataraj is a sound artist based in the north of England. Yeah, my, my name is Paul Nataraj. I work in sound in different spaces. Martin asked me to make something which was a creative engagement with the book, essentially. So I've uh, put together kind of a live montage sequence of things from the book and just other bits and pieces that have kind of come to me over the last few weeks of talking to people about what they've been listening to, what the favourite podcasts are, what some of the people who've contributed to the book and also Dario's book have had on their favourite playlists. So I'm, tr I'm going to do a montage of those um, of bits and pieces from that. And I've also been kind of picking up a few bits and pieces from people today, doing some little vox pops. They're going to be part of it as well. So I've done, been doing some really quick editing uh, over the last uh, hour or so. And hopefully I can incorporate some of those things because I think one of the things for me about podcasting is this, this idea of immediacy, the fact that you can get something out there very quickly. And that's always been the case with radio. But I think with podcasting, this kind of idea of the democracy of it, I think, is really important. And being able to record something on your phone, go home and edit it and have a platform for it very quickly. So I, I, I wanted to creatively reflect that as, uh, as best as I could. Okay, this is on, isn't it? Yeah? Hello? Can you hear that? Good. Everything recording. Fine. Let's start. Okay, this is not something I've done before. Talk to people like this. I'm not a great talker, not of my own accord. But, but just now I, I've got something I want to tell you. I want to talk it through with you. A lot has happened to me, an awful lot I don't understand, and I want to work it out with you whoever you are. So, that's why I'm doing this, making this record my version of events, and hopefully, by telling them to you so publicly, everything will begin to make sense. And maybe, maybe if you understand what's happened, you can help. Let's begin. Right, right come, come here, here you rebel! No! Yes, you oh, 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 Sorry! <laughs> Helen, 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 put, 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 I just wanted to say, I fucking hate you! I hate me too! Oh, shit. We're down! 
I tried cheering Carlos up by telling him my favorite science jokes, like two chemists walk into a bar and one tells the bartender, I'll have an H2O, and the other says, I'll have an H2O too. And the bartender sighs and says, In our room, you could close your eyes and everything was okay. And we had our babies to play with and everybody was dealing with loneliness, right? So so then you have dolls, so you're not alone. And they're really good listeners too. And sometimes they come up with some really good advice. (laughs) A toothy smile and an intoxicating blink. Then she showed her her boobs. That's not acting. Miss Saint Frost first. Have I done something wrong? Complicated, self-contradictory, moral mess. Who's trying to figure out point of it all is and who he is, and he's capable of telling any lie and, and betraying anybody, and on it goes. And so, and we're fascinated that because deep down inside we know that something may be like us. Is that why we tune in? Oh, we wouldn't tune in from day one if we didn't recognize that. You all have psychologists and things to help you with your problems, whereas, uh, like all good English people, I bottle up all my problems, hold them inside and then explode in violence. (laughs) So, actually, not in violence, that's American, though. But I do think maybe you're more used to telling stories about your lives to each other. I give them a space in which they can express their views without fear of attack or retaliation or whatever and allow them to discuss them and, most importantly, have a conversation with them. You don't have to respect what they're saying, but you need to respect their right to say it. Sabotaging me? Mitra, no one even knows who you are. Maybe I'm lazy. You're definitely lazy. Shit. Mitra, you're a whiny bitch. She's doing this on purpose. Get out of my head. 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 She I doesn't really care about me. It's like I was still stuck in that kitchen, sweating over the grill, tearing up over my never-ending pile of chopped onions. The tape recorder was running most of the time, so you, you did become pretty much unaware of it. Mm-hmm. Never fully. Uh uh-uh. uh. Dogs are decided to Tell fight. Tell the fuck here. off and leave you alone. You're my day. Out. We have worked some clicker training. Um, it's especially awesome for moments when other communication is difficult. Like, let's say when your partner's going down on you mm-hmm. and you oh. want to communicate when they have hit the perfect spot. Yeah. Okay. So you can click. You can.
the only person I trusted to tell me the truth about having sex with the part of your clitoris missing. You know, one thing I mentioned before is being a balance between emotion um, and, you know, uh, your mind, like your thought. Just, you know, don't, you know, it's good to have feelings for someone. I can't help it. It's always been this way. I. In kindergarten, I got in trouble for asking boys to kiss me on the cheek. My first crush was when I was six years old, and I wrote about it in my diary every single day. His name is Wesley Monteith, and I still remember his phone number. It's I head in towards the dining room, and there stands a tall young man, well built, and in his right hand was my framing hammer, and in his left hand was my sledgehammer. I could see no pupils in his eyes, and immediately I thought, this guy's on drugs, probably meth. Something is changing, that something is evolving, that the, these old ideas of detachment and impartiality and objectivity may be being left behind. We yeah. need to get really granular with all that shit, okay? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. That kind, of, that kind of brings up an issue that I wanted to speak with you about. Okay, I, I have literally one more minute. Okay. B26. Where the fuck is B26? This is the A. These are the A gates, Heidi. The signage here needs a lot of work. Really the emergency services in my town. The ambulance is on. The fire ambulance. Damn it! Man, I'm gonna have to ask you to calm down. Turn it off. Turn it. Ma'am, are you still there? Are you still there? Hi, I'm Nikki Tomlin, and this is Cyphercast Part Eight stupid, stupid thing we're about to do. Uh, Kalpana, do you, do you have a second for one question? One. Do you regret coming here? I haven't slept. I'm scared. Slept. From I'm the scared. foot, up the legs, up along an arm, and then... Hello? Nick? Yeah. Uh, what the hell is going on? When it comes to Tannis, they say you always know it when you see it. Even if, by that point, it's too late, 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 too late. I'm standing on a platform and something's coming towards me. I'm not quite sure what it is. I've never seen one before. It's all in black and it flaps. It has no feet. I'm upset. Something bad has just happened. But I was scared of them because they were aggressive. Super aggressive. When they seen that, they claimed it. They, they just, like a thousand of them came and said, yeah, we need that. And it was, it was, it was frightening. It was frightening. So I um, threw it and ran behind her. She was my protection. And she saw Dad on the floor doing the shaking, and she just left him and picked me out of bed and put me between her bosoms. And she pressed me there for a long time and kissed the tip of my head. 
After that, she took me to her room. She said that Dad was overwhelmed and that he was reading of Kierkegaard, which was too bad for him. Why are you protecting them? I'm not. Then he rang up again. After he shot me, how many times did they listen to that? I was bleeding to death. It lasts all night. I'm finding it hard to think that something is wrong. Multiple voices in and out in a tapestry fashion. There's no stable point of listening within any recognizable scene. We bounce from conversation to interview to archive recording to studio narration without any contextualization. And it's filled with these meticulously managed, high-speed, tiny interjections and overlaps. There's no stable point of listening within any recognizable scene. We bounce from conversation to interview to archive recording to studio narration. Irrationality. Oh, Even death shall not talk. Oh, Jack, don't. It's too awful. Our poor young lives cut so short. Oh, don't. Don't. There'll be articles in all the newspapers. I wish I could read them. You can't have your funeral and watch it, young lady. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. There's blood on your hands. Blood on my hands. There's blood on all of us. That's the way this world works. A cold smile curls across his lips. Don't you look at me like that. Willie spits in his face. You're killing them, Freya! His eyebrows flicker. You're staff. you work You're People will ridicule you. You would be bullied all your life by your own family, by your cousins, by your friends, for being two shades darker than them, basically. Podcast was always a chance to hear voices that you wouldn't normally hear and to hear them talking ways you wouldn't normally hear people talking. And so when we get more mainstream or more celebrity-based shows, they've already got, they've got the media. Go back to your place. No, 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 This podcast is brought to you by my lack of success in traditional career paths. Proper jobs? Who needs them? Too much recognition or financial stability are bad for the soul. And I'm not the only one. If you're like me and things haven't gone quite the way you'd planned, then get yourself a podcast. What does money compare to the feeling of adoration you get from your tens of listeners? I'm going to try and try and pop the blue. That's insane. Oh my God. Oh my God. It was not insane. He did it. He did it. He did it.
tall poppy. No. The tall so. poppy gets cut down. Right. So what happens is, you know, often if you appear confident or you're enjoying yourself, some people think you'd fully yourself, you know, yeah, need, yeah. you need bringing down a peg or two. And I think that's what she was doing that day. Right. And I, but, yeah, I remember that was a very difficult period of my life, and I had a fucking point to this, which I've forgotten, I know. I'm so tropical, so marginal, and I'm in the shadow of whatever phenomenon I'm investigating. But in the book, I'm much more centre stage, and I'm, and I'm figuring out what I feel about my, my life and love. It was a matter of extreme importance to find the true ovaries of the eel. And they came up with this plan. They thought, I know what what we're going to do. All we have to do is put out there a reward. Like, if you find the gonads of an eel, you'll get a thousand ducats. (laughs) Exactly. Ah. (laughs) You want to talk about seeing some anger? There's a lot of anger being expressed these days. And I just think, man, if I ever said that. You know, those would be those bubble moments where I could end the presidency. If I said these three words, it would all be over. And those words are said every day, all day, these days. So, no, No, there's still still a double double standard. standard. He's in the cupboard upstairs at the moment at my mum's, but we're going to uh, shatter him. Um, Scatter him. Scatter him. We're going to shatter him. We're going to scatter him at Christmas in his favourite place in the Lake District. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I I think he would love that. Yeah. Let him set him free. What the fuck is this place? This place? Hi, this is hell This hell. Hell? Why? Well, because, uh, because you're dead. Podcast narrative is also really, really beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And in the hands of some producers, it even becomes transcendent and metaphysical. Those are words that they use to talk about it. Pierre Bourdieu said all reality is a construct. We exist in relation to our social ties. So you'll never understand me without considering where I'm from. The local guys. And for the record, I'm over yesterday. To be honest, I think a joke about my kids fancying me was poorly timed, but I know that's just you and your... We exist in relation to other guys and girls. So I had to move to a better reality from one where everybody tries and fails. All beings endeavor to persist in their own being. Spinoza said that. I heard about that from a uh, cup of coffee. But on the other hand, I guess on some level, I still hope that uh, that I will kind of fulfill myself by being consumed. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that dream is still is still very much alive. Though, yeah. if I'm being perfectly honest with you, um, you know, I do I do sometimes fear that that moment is past. I feel weird saying this, but um, I could drink you. Right now? Yeah. I think that things that feel to know someone intuitively good musically can so there's this natural connection between story and story. There is no surviving footage of what happens next. 
and no audio for me to play for you wherever you are right now. And maybe that's for the best. Maybe it should just be silent. comes to choosing, I'm going to let him go his way. I hate the fact that I'm the cause of his sin. He said that I shouldn't feel like I'm pulling him away from his religion, but hello, that's exactly what I'm doing. I put it to Bill Ritz when I talked to him briefly on the phone. Jay's story kept changing. You were catching the inconsistencies, and he was having to explain them and clean up his story. So what ultimately made you believe him? And then the murder itself. How would he be able to strangle Hay, a tall, strong, athletic girl, quote, remove her body from the car, carry it to the trunk, and place her in there in broad daylight at 2.30 in the afternoon? And the second thing, which you can't miss about Adnan, is that he has giant brown eyes, like a dairy cow. That's what prompts my most idiotic lines of inquiry. Could someone who looks like that really strangle his girlfriend? She gave me his phone number and told me to call, which I did, late at night, from a phone box in New York. It was important that my voice sounded sexy. I resolved to keep it low and deep. So then she just kind of doubles down and gets louder and louder, and it just starts berating everyone. And really, it's like kind of rebelling against society. That tape, that last tape, it was so much part of the fabric of the family myth. It was quilted into our psyches. Let's look at the ingredients of the human body. You learn from biology class we're mostly water. But what is water mostly? Hydrogen Hydrogen. oxygen. Hydrogen oxygen. Look in the cosmos. The number one ingredient in the cosmos is hydrogen. Next in the universe, Oxygen. Next on Earth and in life, oxygen. Next in the universe, carbon. Next in life, carbon. Next in the universe, nitrogen. Next on life, nitrogen. One for one, you go down the list. We are not simply in this universe. The universe is in us. questions if that's all right I'm sure you probably it's a bit like after the football game you don't want to you just want to go <laughs> and finish but um, at the beginning you, you said that you put this um, mix together this piece of sound art in response to Martin and Lance's book yeah, yeah. can you say a little bit more about how that translates into into what we've just heard uh, well quite a lot of the samples are 
pieces that Martin and Lance have written about in the book. So there's uh, elements from blood culture there in terms of like some strings. The loud drones are the strings from blood culture music, like pitched really far down. So I'm kind of just using bits and manipulating them. And also I was kind of really interested in this idea of intimacy that Martin talks about quite a lot in the book. And I think there's one quote from the book that says, podcasting is full frontal. Um, and I think, you know, we've kind of touched upon that as well today with quite a few of the things that people have been talking about, you know, this idea that we can be very personal. And maybe that's part of the appeal. Uh, Todd was talking to me before, and he was just talking about this idea that you, 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 you listen on your own a lot to podcasts. It's not something that you do collectively. And I kind of wanted to reflect that as well. Because in building the piece, I was doing it by myself and just kind of going through the book, looking through the book and, and thinking about ways in which um, I could take samples which kind of reflected some of the... I mean, the book's amazing in terms of really giving us some clear delineations between the ideas of radio. And, and I wanted to try and find pieces that really reflected that. And that's So I threw the arches in there because I think there is a definite movement between the, what people have said today, this Radio 4 kind of idea and what podcasting does in terms of how they approach drama. So I just wanted to throw a little few things in and uh, give a reflection of podcasting listening. I, I hope I did that. I don't know if I did, but... Yeah, no, no, you, you really did. And I have to confess here that I'm the person at the beginning that yeah. Paul interviewed and I have never listened to a podcast and so I now to need to rectify that. So thank you. And I just would like to thank, if we could just thank Paul for that fantastic mix there. You've been listening to a special episode of the podcast For Your Ears Only, recorded on location at Lighthouse in Brighton as part of a podcasting day that we organized for the Brighton Digital Festival on October 15th, 2019. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and if you'd like to learn more about the art, craft, culture, economics, and relationships of podcasting, then please listen to the rest of this series and check out our book, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution published by Bloomsbury. I'm Martin Spinelli, and on behalf of my research partner and co-host Lance Dan, and our producers Ella Gray Thomas and Jack F. Jewers, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>